0: The season of the ready state is sponsored by Butcher Box.
1: Yeah, you know, we have been, we get asked a lot about nutrition. A couple things. One, your tissue quality is directly impacted by the quality of things you eat, unequivocally. And I think we can pretty much boil down all of the, uh, information I know about nutrition into one sentence. Don't eat like an asshole.
0: Here's the deal with ButcherBox. We've used it. We love it. You get a box of super beautiful grass-fed or finished beef, free-range chicken, and old-world pork, whatever that is.
1: (laughs) It's like vintage pork. No, no. Here's the deal. I love bacon. You love bacon. Use our link. We'll get you $20 $20 off and get some free bacon.
0: And it's 9 to 11 pounds of meat for $129 a month, which is less than $6 a meal.
1: I mean, forever we have been saying... You should probably eat like a vegan plus the best meat you can afford.
0: Vegan plus meat.
1: And guess what? ButcherBox is that it's it's amazing.
0: You like meat and want to avoid eating like an asshole and you love free bacon. Go to butcherbox.com slash the ready state and you'll get $20 off and free
1: bacon. No brainer. everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett.
0: And I'm Juliette Starrett.
1: And this is The Ready State. You got it. You stop it. You got it. This episode, it is my great pleasure to introduce our wonderful community to an incredible woman named Sue Felzoni. Now, if you are in the strength conditioning, performance, athletic training world, it's hard not to run into this extraordinary brain. If you, Juliet, don't, don't be jealous, but if you can have a crush on a brain, I have a crush on Sue Felzoni's brain.
0: Well, I, Sue is a huge inspiration to me and, and should be for many women listening to this podcast. She and was men. the first female head athletic trainer in any of the four major sports.
1: Yeah. That makes her like Amelia Earhart.
0: Exactly. She were, uh, was with the LA Dodgers for six years and was the head athletic trainer there and physical therapist. And she is just a smart and kind empathetic empathetic woman she's amazing
1: yeah i think you're going to enjoy this conversation and what's relevant particularly is that here we have a person working at the highest levels in sports performance as a physical therapist and a trainer which means she's solving real problems in real time so it's not a she doesn't live in a, in a construct of of theoretical ivory towerness she has a new book out she is hard in the science hard in the pain, as it were but She's actually seeing where the rubber hits the road, and I think that is really interesting in terms of bringing that concept of understanding of common musculoskeletal dysfunction and pain back to all of us. Her new book is called
0: Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Please enjoy.
1: To Falzoni, thank you so much for coming on The Ready State.
2: We're so excited to have you. I am so excited to be here and chatting with you guys today.
1: Uh, You have just performed a miracle of the modern clinician working coach provider which is you wrote a book we (laughs) we, i I don't remember where we were somewhere i mean it was Greg cook who was saying once someone approached him and said hey you should write a book you know i want to write a book and he was like well if you haven't already started to write it you're never going to do it so you've just pulled off a miracle it's like a, it's a it's a it's it's a it's incredible, and we want to talk about it, but we have some other things we want to cover first. So we have, we'll come back to this this giant of a, of a gift that you've given to the world. But uh, first awesome. things first, you are pretty unique. So well,
0: being, you. <laughs> being the first female athletic trainer in all four major sports in the U.S., you are such an inspiration to me personally, and I'm sure tons of women. But we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and career so that we get sort of a trajectory of how you ended up where you are now.
2: Gosh, yeah, for sure. I um, uh, I appreciate all of those kind words. My my goodness. Um, yeah, I started off. Yeah, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and um, started off in physical therapy school, and it was a bachelor's degree at the time, which shows my age. <laughs> um, and then uh, went on from physical therapy school. I moved down to North Carolina for my first clinic job and um, just really kind of wanted something more, something different. And I worked with an athletic trainer there and um, really just enjoyed learning about athletic training as a profession from her and um, decided to go back to school. So I went back and got my master's of science and human movement with a concentration in sports medicine at UNC Chapel Hill, um, and then got my athletic training certificate then. And somehow during that time, also got my CSCS so I was doing some personal training um at school trying to you know make little money during grad school and um no. then uh you know broke up with my boyfriend and life was over and I picked up and moved to Arizona because it was sunny and um randomly met a man named Mark Verstegen who had just opened a company called Athlete's Performance which is now known as EXOS but um you know back in 2001 it was known as Athlete's Performance and volunteered for him for about six months or so until I think September of 01 when he finally realized I wasn't gonna go away and he offered me a job. (laughs) (laughs) And um, became his first physical therapist and so really helped grow that company. Gosh, I think I was employee number seven or close to it. Now they're obviously a company of over 5,000 and just an absolute monster in the business. And the reason I was so excited about Athletes Performance back in the day was because it was an opportunity for me to not have to choose which letters behind my name I wanted to be. Like Mark offered me a place where I could be an athletic trainer and a physical therapist and a strength coach all at the same time. And then we had nutrition and we had massage therapy and we had chiropractic care and we had sports psychology and we had recovery and regeneration strategies and metabolic specialists. And we had all this entire like unbelievable multi-bliss disciplinary team to take care of the athlete. And I obviously just fell in love with that concept of how do we work together in an athlete centric model to really help elevate the patient and and their needs. And so, you know, spent 13 years of my life there, which was just absolutely unbelievable. Um, You know, during my time there, started working with the Dodgers um, as a consultant at first. And then that role grew into head athletic trainer, which was an unbelievable experience. Um, And then left both of those positions, I think, at the end of 14. I don't know, the years are beginning to blend. <laughs> um, <laughs> and took about a year off because being head athletic trainer of a major league baseball team and vice president of a very large company are not two jobs you should have at the same time. Um, so I took about a year off, did my yoga teacher training, Zen out, traveled a bit, um, and then took a job with the U.S. Men's National Team as their head athletic trainer for a little bit. And then um, did that for a little while and then um, started teaching and really in I think 2016, I became an associate professor and still am at AT Still University in their athletic training programs there um, own my own private education company. Now we do a lot of dry needling education as well as now with the book, we're going to have a lot of other education stuff coming out. And then currently just still consult with different professional organizations and teams and pro athletes and definitely keep my hands on patients um, quite regularly. So right now just sort of doing a little bit of everything, which is kind of fun.
1: And if you follow you online, turns out you're quite a sommelier. <laughs> yes,
2: that mine is my exit strategy. <laughs> so I posted about wine today. <laughs> we
0: all need an exit strategy.
1: I love it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I find, I've had the pleasure of actually sitting in an audience and watching you speak and be exposed to your powerful brain. And it's, I just find myself nodding along and then really shocked at the level of consilience the how much you can drive together and and synthesize and integrate concepts and i wonder if that some of that is coming from the fact that you know you have been at the rehab physio side which is traditionally post injury you have the athletic trainer side which is saying hey we have athletes who are having pain or dysfunctional problems and they're going to play today because they're big boys and big girls, and that's what that's what the job is. And as a strength coach side, which is theoretically how to prepare and repair and regenerate these athletes, do you think if you pull one of those things out that you kind of quite see the world the same way? Because that's a really unique – the shorthand for people who are not listening or, or can't conceptualize this is that if Sue is describing the trunk of the elephant and she can describe the tail of the elephant, it's because she's actually walked around the elephant. <laughs>
2: Right. (laughs) Yeah, I think it gives me a really unique perspective, right? I think that a lot of people have those credentials, but people haven't functioned in all of those roles where I have functioned as a strength coach and I have functioned as the athletic trainer and I have functioned as a physical therapist and I have functioned in season and out of season. And I have functioned in multiple leagues now across in season. Um, you know, including NBA and NFL and Major League Baseball and international soccer. And so I think it does give me a really unique perspective that I'm so, so grateful for. And I could never have mapped out if I tried. <laughs> this was not my life plan.
1: No, it's not. <laughs> and really, frankly, when you were originally in physio school, it didn't exist. It wasn't even a possibility. What Mark Forsegan has done at Athletes Performance, and even Exos, is creating a model of there are physical therapists in the strength room like you can be cleaning and then walk you know lifting heavy weights and Olympic lifting and 10 feet away you know there is a brilliant therapist in fact what we've seen more and more is and something one of the models we advocate is trying to get therapeutic input closer to the source of the actual function which is which is more easily said than done for sure because usually what happens with most people is that we blow up have some pain ignore it for a while and then and then something happens to the place where we get so bad that i have can't occupy my role as my in my team can't perform my sport or my you know in my can't do my job can't can't i'm a i can't even pick up my kids or or shop and then i go get help right and that's so far removed and what ends up happening then i think is that we see two very different spectrums the people who are working at the source and then the people who are working so far removed from the source that sometimes we can't conjoin those experiences if you, that's
2: do, right I know, I completely agree. And I think that the environment in which we create is so important to that of our patient, because as you said, I mean, the weight room was right next to my treatment table. Like there was no room, there was no wall, there was no, you know, private treatment room, which obviously doesn't work for every patient population. I'm not saying it does, but the environment that we created really blended the entire process and it didn't It didn't make people feel like they had to move from one station to the next. It all just was, and that really kind of creates a mindset of a different mindset, I think, as far as health and performance goes, for sure. When everyone is just working in the same place and not physically separated by walls, that that makes a huge difference.
0: You know, it's interesting because uh, I think you've talked about like a siloed approach, and I think in so many teams and facilities, you know, everybody is just working in their own little silo and not even communicating. So, you know, what Exos did early on was just so remarkable. And, you know, I think it's slowly spreading out into the world, but, um, I can't go on talking about any of this until I ask you as a woman, what was it like and what were the (laughs) challenges you faced being the first woman athletic trainer?
2: Yeah, I, um, there definitely were challenges, you know, I think that, um, I think, you know, everything from little things like not having a bathroom to use and having to go out into the concourse with the fans um, to use the restroom. <laughs> during they a made game.
1: a movie about that. It's called Hidden Figures. Hidden
0: Figures. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Did you see that? <laughs> she had to run all the way across campus. OK.
2: Yeah. Yes. Right. I mean, unbelievable. So just like little things like that changing in janitor's closets. Right. Like anywhere I could find. Um, you know to to bigger issues to you know to how people sort of dealt with you um, When you were the only woman in the room and and you know, some of those challenges were large some of them were small Um, but overall I think that You know, it was a matter of mutual respect and I think for sure that the coaches and the athletes that I worked with Um, we had a mutual respect for each other. I understood where they were right I didn't hang out in their locker room or in their clubhouse all the time um, and you know i i went in i did what i needed to do and i got out but i respected that that was their space and and i didn't expect 35 men to change who they were because i was in the room um but at the same time they respected my room right when i was in the athletic training room they knew i was in there they would come in clothed they they came in with respect right they they um they took their conversations elsewhere if i didn't want to hear them and and i think it it was really because i respected their space and they respected mine. And so I think it just, it turned into what ended up being a really great experience, I think, across the board. Um, but it, it really came down to a mutual respect of each other and each other's space and what everybody was bringing to the table.
1: I think the Warriors, the Golden State Warriors here have a savage athletic, head athletic trainer, director of physio there, you know, and uh, one of the, I mean, clearly the model is, is broken a little bit, but I do know that athletes now and have always respect what works. <laughs> you know I mean? That, right. You know, I mean like you, you, come in and have a conversation with you and go play better. or Your knee stops hurting or you're able to manage this chronic injury. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. You're a believer.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. They don't care what color hair you have, what color eyes you like. If you can help them feel better ethically and immediately, that's all they care about. And if you can, you know, if you can do that, then, then you've got their ear for sure.
0: You know that reminds me of a little bit. I used to, in a former life, I was a practicing attorney, and one of the ongoing discussions we would have as women in the law firm was, you know, how to how to create an environment where more women can become partners and advance in the the legal profession. And one yeah. of the things people brought up, which sounds like it should be from the 1950s, but that a lot of the male partners would actually go play golf together, and women, uh, at least a lot of the women lawyers didn't play golf. And that was where a lot of deals were made and things were done and relationships were forged, you know, sort of outside of the office. Did you ever feel like not being able to like be in on the locker room and be included in some of that stuff just because it wouldn't have been professionally appropriate? Did you ever felt feel sort of left out of some of that?
2: No, not, not really. Cause you know, at the end of the night I can sit down and drink whiskey with the best of them. So I felt like I made up for <laughs> <Right>. it then. <laughs> right.
0: Well, I, uh, I read that in, um, I read that in 2016, there's something like 17.5% of division one athletic trainers are women. Is this something that, you know, coaches and teams care about? Or are they trying to change? Is it even important to try to grow the number of women that are sort of being represented off the field? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Absolutely, I think that you know Major League Baseball, I know, has a diversity program in place, and they're really um, making concerted efforts to really improve diversity across the board within some of those not only um, on-field positions, but in their front-office positions as well. And I know the other leagues do as as well. This is definitely something that we're just going to see more and more of. It is not uncommon for the professional athlete in this day and age. Um, they've had a female athletic trainer at the high school and collegiate level. It's natural for them to now have a female athletic trainer at the professional level and to have, you know, all, you know, all genders represented across the board because we're seeing that at the younger and younger level. So it's just not a big deal for, I mean, a 15 year old, they they have female athletic trainers all the time, so those people are going to become professional professional athletes and and not really think twice about it. I think it will eventually become a non conversation, but yeah, um, you know, we're in that transition right now, so it's an exciting time, and we're just going to see more and more women sort of stepping into these different roles, which is which is natural and exciting, and obviously well deserved. Well, I'll tell you so what. Great. One of the
1: things we we want to know is what were you like as a child. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well. Like, as a, you know, I was a terrible athlete, which is really funny.
1: Um, <laughs> or now you become an expert at knitting athletes yeah. back together. <laughs> yeah.
2: You know, when you can't, you teach, right? <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, I grew up in a pool. I was definitely, I was a synchronized swimmer, which everybody makes fun of how the heck I was a synchronized swimmer in Buffalo, New York. Uh, but I was in a pool constantly and it just was one of those things where From seven to 14, I never developed any land-based skill. Like, I don't think I have a fast twitch muscle fiber in my body. And so (laughs) when I became a coach and I started coaching movement, one of Luke Richardson, who's the um, director of performance, or I don't know his exact title, but he's with the Houston Texans now. He gave me the key. He was like, all we need to do, Sue, we need to get you to do everything really good three times to one side. I'm giving away my secret. (laughs) Three. And so I practiced, and I practiced movements over and over and over again. And I got really great at demonstrating fundamental athletic movement, three reps to one side. If you make me do a fourth rep or you make me do it to the left, I look like <laughs> a baby giraffe. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to work really, really hard because I didn't develop these natural athletic skills. As I became an adult, I had to work really, really hard to like even look remotely athletic um, in my coaching.
1: <laughs> Let me ask you this. This is actually really interesting. In our last season, we talked with Harry Mera about athletic development. We talked to Eric Cressy about, you know, thinking about specialization. One of the things I just heard you say was that, you know, you were in a pool nonstop and weren't exposed to any sort of formal movement training. Right. What we're seeing now in our experience of in the world that we live in is that kids are specializing early, that they are maniacs at their, you know, outside left-handed hitter, you know, jump approach but they don't have a very formal movement language or a formal movement library. Do you think we're at the top ends because you see so much of that? Do you think that we're still into the the language and depth of kids who've just played lots of sports and are coming up? Or do you see that we're starting to kind of go into our, our debt? We're starting to run into kids who are progressing through the ranks, but are a little bit more fragile or don't have this language. We're having to do more remediation in terms of, movement skills and and tissue tolerance even.
2: Yeah, I I think we are. I think this is a really interesting time sort of in the last couple years. And I think the next kind of this next generation of professional athlete, these kids have really specialized early. And I think it will be interesting to sort of monitor these injury trends during this decade to sort of see how they are able to tolerate these loads as they get to the professional level. It's already coming out, right? Like they're doing some great research um, through the University of Wisconsin as far as early specialization goes and, and what we're seeing from an injury standpoint. We've, all intuitively known that that play and fundamental athletic development as a child is huge for your adult performance. And so the research is starting to back us up now, but right now we're going to be living in this day and age of the professional athlete who was a one sport athlete. And it's going to be different. It'll be interesting to see what what these injuries trends are during this decade, no doubt, but but I I don't think it's going to be good. Um, And I think that parents are recognizing that they do have to get back, but it's a, it's a conundrum, right? They, they want scholarships and they need, people are looking them younger and younger and the specialization continues to happen. So I get as a parent how it's really difficult, but yeah, I mean, you know, we grew up playing a lot of different sports. And, and I mean, I was always in a pool, so I, I really didn't by the time I realized and recognized mentally that that was what I wanted to do. It was too late from my athletic development standpoint. Um, I didn't start doing multi-sports till I was in high school just cause I was always in a pool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting for sure.
0: Yeah. I think it will be very interesting to see what happens, you know, and as a parent, Kelly and I've talked about this before, but it has, you know, even though we know and advocate for kids, Developing and doing multiple sports, it's actually been very hard to um, huh. have our one daughter who loves volleyball not do volleyball year round. So it's been, right. it's been a challenge, <laughs> even you know, yeah. even though we know better.
2: <laughs> right, right, and you and that's the thing, right? You know better, and it's still a challenge. So imagine the parents who don't necessarily have that information, um, and they're trying to do the right thing by their kiddo, and yet you know, maybe, maybe not so much. So it's, it's, it's really tough.
0: And I just want to go back and say that, um, for the record, I think synchronized swimming is totally legit as a sport (laughs) and no one should make fun of you for it because it's totally awesome. And, and I want to recommend to you, I just saw like a 10 minute documentary at an all women's film festival about a senior citizen synchronized swimming team in Harlem that's been practicing together for like 50 years. And it's adorable.
2: Oh my gosh. So I think you would love
1: it. And I am a nerd for sports, docu, where, sports docs where people go behind the scenes and you really see what training and gritty and travel looks like, not just the shininess. And there was a, uh, a documentary where they follow the Canadian national women's team around trying to qualify for the Olympics. And all I'm going to say is brutal. Like wow. suffering is universal across every elite sport.
0: Wow. So I've got a question for you and Kelly may need to correct how I asked this because I know this is a moment of passion for him, but he kind of goes crazy sometimes with the traditional physical therapy world who seems to suggest at least on the interwebs that unless a technique or something one would do with an athlete is fully supported by a peer reviewed double blind, super duper amazing study, then it's not a legitimate technique, even though he or others may see it in the clinic and see for athletes that it works well and it solves problems and helps athletes move better and feel better. Um, But there's definitely sort of a contingent of the physical therapy world that says, well, yeah, that's not valid because there's no study uh, that supports it. How, how do you respond to that? And Kelly, did I ask that question in a way that meets with your approval? I can't
1: wait to see what the answer is.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I agree with Kelly. That stuff makes me insane. I totally get and agree and appreciate that research is important in what we do, and it guides one portion of what's called evidence based practice. And I think people have taken the term evidence based practice, and as usual, we have manipulated it to mean something different than it was ever intended to mean. When you really look at the definition of evidence based practice, it's not only the best evidence that we have available in the research, but it's also um, clinician experience and patient values. And when you combine those three things, that's evidence-based practice. And yet somehow, just like the concept of RICE, right? Like rest, ice, compression, and elevation, somehow REST got turned into a mobilization. Somehow in the concept of evidence-based practice, it got misinterpreted to mean it needs to have a peer-reviewed research study to support it. And when you really look at, at, what it means all three of those things the patient values the clinic, clinician experience and the best current evidence are all equally important in the concept of evidence based practice
1: as we pivot a little bit and talk about the nature of athletic based pain <clears throat> and we understand pain is highly subjective we've we've talked about what pain is we know that athletes tend to be able to have higher experience of pain and maybe don't report, or they see it as a natural phenomenon. I mean, we have always said that if, you know, if you dropped into the brain of one of our athletes in their, you know, peak performance states, you would explode in pain. You couldn't h- handle the the amount of suffering going on inside that right. that person. which just a normal experience. But one of the things that we're I feel like we're doing a bad job of is bridging. And, and let me step back for a model for a moment. We have always felt like our practice at the highest levels of sports and performance really were our laboratory where we could bring concepts back, Formula One ideas back, and then actually apply them to the rest of us. So that sport just wasn't circus, but it was this sort of ongoing laboratory where we could really pressure test ideas. And and what we see is we're not doing a good job of people helping them manage their pain. We just give them, you know, drug solutions, pain medications. We say it's in their head. It gets. It ends up being a very confusing you know, place, and all of a sudden, well, people are like, "Well, I guess acupuncture doesn't work, or dry kneeling doesn't work, or you know, even though cupping really helped my back and I got back to my gardening, I shouldn't be cupping because someone on the internet said it wasn't wasn't supported by science." So, how how do we begin to unwrap that, and then and and understanding that a lot of the things that work well are belief effects. We get it that that's very powerful. I mean, but how, where do we start as the citizen person? Who's trying to address their myofascial discomfort?
2: Yeah, I, that's a that's a great it's a great question. I I think a couple of things. One, um, as medical professionals, our first duty is to do no harm. And so, when I use, let's say, for example, kinesiology tape, you can read all the research you want on kinesiology tape and argue about what it does or does not do. Pretty much the consistent message in the literature is that it helps with pain. Okay, great. So that's a great thing for me to do. Whether it helps or not, I don't know. But if it's saying it helps with pain, and if my biggest risk of putting kinesiology tape on someone is skin irritation, my risk reward is pretty good there. My worst case scenario is skin irritation. My best case scenario is my patient feels better. Why wouldn't I try this sort of innocent sort of treatment on somebody to see if it can help with their pain, right? So number one, risk reward and do no harm. And we have to evaluate that for every patient and every modality because every modality is not equal risk in every patient. So we've got to evaluate the modality or the intervention based on the patient in front of us. And I think that's number one. Number two, we act like the word placebo is a bad thing. While placebo may be a negative in the research. Placebo is fantastic in my clinical eyes. I don't care if it's a placebo effect if my patient feels better Fantastic who placebo in my in my clinic world is not a bad word Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's great and So I I think I don't mind if, if my patient is feeling better with the intervention and if they've decreased their medication right if I do some dry needling with someone and then they don't stop on their way out of the treatment room to see the physician to get an Ambien That's a huge huge win. And I don't care if my N is one, I have stopped one athlete from taking one Ambien tonight. That's a win for me. And so, you know, I think it really, it just kind of depends on your definition of a win when it comes to patient care. For me, that's a huge win.
1: Right. It's like serial, uh, anecdotal empiricism. (laughs) Cause I'm like, (laughs) it's not N of one. It's N of one times thousands and thousands and thousands. And, you know, one of the things that I, I struggle with a lot is this notion that people aren't somehow smart enough to know what works and what doesn't work. And that really always has felt very paternalistic paternalistic, and condescending in that, you know, we, I mean, I don't remember the guy who said it, but you can fool some people sometime, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Right. And, uh, you know, if it works athletes you know we always say is this observable measurable and repeatable you know does can I can I see change and that subjective experience is the thing especially when it's the application of the subjective experience which is hitting home runs you know being able to go out and do my job lift weights you know pour concrete I'm in I'm down so I I think we aren't leveraging the power of the brain to make these changes for whatever reasons and I you know I just want to go on record as saying that you know I really liked how um, you know, in the book uh, Anatomy Trains, how it's described as, hey, probably the treatment effects are working on a lot of different levels, mm-hmm. and it could be all of these things, including placebo, including desensitization, including imp- improved perfusion. And I, I feel like as long as we have to always show someone a single mechanism of effect, and and have proof. Unequivocally about that, then that's that's going to be limiting in terms of how we help the average person think about and treat and shift low self control back to them around managing their pain.
2: Absolutely, and I think that that you hit the nail on the head there. Just because we don't know why it works, doesn't mean it doesn't work.
1: <laughs> well, you know, you you put on other your your feed is so great because one of the things that I hold sacrosanct is that. All of the clinicians and coaches that I work with and admire are transparent in their practice and transparent in their coaching. They show you what they mean. And I really feel like not only do we try, have always tried to say this is how we think, this is what it looks like, here's real time, you know, <laughs> your, your mileage may vary. But you can actually see how you're treating. And a lot of people who like to lob poop bombs, you know, they're all safe behind the anonymity of Twitter. <laughs> and you can't, unless you go to their course, and even then you're still not seeing how it works. And for example, one of the I think, things that you showed a long time ago Was you were like, hey, look at this treatment outcome or effect of I put on some kinesio tape on someone's back and then you did some dry, some cupping.
2: Some cupping, right.
1: And it created change. You could see it pulled out the changes in what you described as microcirculation, which is circulation at these very small levels. And I was like, oh, isn't that... Nice anecdotal evidence. I mean, just like empirical evidence. <laughs> no that study for that. that I no know. Study. I know. This is my problem. But, <laughs> but I think you know the we know that the complex being that is the the human, this complex psycho-emotional animal, there it's multifactorial, and there's a lot going on. Comma, where do we begin as as citizens to draw the line of saying, hey, this is this is working, or this is not working, or this is really trying to. And this is snake oil and this is not. How how would I wrap my head around that as my mom or my friend down the hall who has back pain?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I always, I kind of look at it in three different ways and and these may not be exact definitions, but in my brain, evidence is something that we have when we have a whole bunch of research studies that are pointing us in one direction. So some of the low back pain things that, you know, have recently came out with the Academy of Family Physicians, um, you know, the, uh, ankle rules, um, you know, things, things that a lot of evidence has shown and pointed us in the right direction, in the same direction, the same conclusions. To me, that's evidence. We have very little evidence. I should say, we have very little things that we have a lot of evidence over as opposed to research where you can find one research study that tells you it's a positive effect or a negative effect. Like I can pull a research study about anything based on my feelings about that intervention, right? (laughs) You can always find a positive or a negative research study to support your opinion. That doesn't mean we have evidence. It just means you found a research study to support what you think. Isn't that great? And then- (laughs) And and
1: useful and convenient. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Right, absolutely. Convenient for your dogma if you have it. (laughs) That's right. And then in an absence of- research or an absence of some of these things then all we have is fundamental science and if you can base it that's one thing that we is sort of fundamental is anatomy and physiology and if you can support what you're doing with fundamentals of anatomy and physiology then that's a good thing if you can't support what you're doing with the fundamentals of anatomy and physiology then maybe you need to rethink it maybe it is more snake oil but if you can back it up with those fundamental principles that really underlie every single thing that we do then then i then i think you have some reason to give it a shot
1: Yeah, that's logic i mean that's what we were (laughs) saying that that's that's induction and Sir Francis Bacon even said that, you know, the goal of the scientific method, Juliet's rolling her eyes and Lisa snorting. Sir Francis Bacon. Hey, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Sir Francis Bacon, nerds. He's so smart. He, hey, I may be dumb, but I can lift heavy things, okay? <laughs> um, you know, he, he pointed out that it was all about pattern recognition and trying to make inductive reasoning of inductive patterns and, and processes out of these large data sets. And I feel like, you know, we, we go amiss because there is this, you know, need to sell people stuff. But on the, on the hand, I don't think, how can we, as clinicians working on the front lines of putting out fires and having people actually perform again, whether it's the military or it's in the, all the sports that you work with, how do we translate that over or aggregate those, those experiences so that we can start to see best practices? Because when you treat... And I see what you do. I think, oh yes, I've seen this in every one of the levels of sports performance I've ever been. And I see the athlete get up off the table and kick butt, you know, or heal heal the limits their physiology. How, do, how right. where should we start with that as clinicians?
2: Oh, that's that's a great question. It's I think it is about being transparent with what we do, and 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 I think not to bring it back to the book, but you know, I think that was one huge reason why I wanted to get a book out was because I wanted to be transparent in my thought processes and what I do. I don't, you know, you, you work with, with, um, people whose identities need to need to be protected. <laughs> and so do I. So a lot of times I can't always put what I did in my treatment practice today, but I can put down what I did, why I did it right. And share those results and sort of share it in a way that, that can be, I don't know, not, yeah, non-judgmental, like, hey, here's what I did. Here's the result. Go. I mean, it's not a positive or negative necessarily. It just is. Um, and so, yeah, feeling like we can be transparent about what we're doing. Um, and social media can be so powerful for that. Um, and it can be so detrimental for that as well, right? And so I think we, we have to be careful. We have to be careful with um, who we're following, how we're following, what those people are doing. Um, and, and, and yeah, be selective. And I think as far as the end user, right? Cause it's, for me, it's always my mom factor, right? What is my mom? Can my 75 year old mom do this? What does my 75 year old mom think about this? Um, you know, and if I can't relate it to her and I can't make her understand why something might or might not work, then, then it it's probably not great. Right? So we've got to do a better job. And I think, from a from a physical therapy athletic training and strength standpoint, we've got to do a better job at, at educating the the end consumer. They are craving knowledge, and how we do that, you know, I'm not really sure. It's a large, large task. But the end consumer is craving knowledge; they're drowning in it. They're absolutely drowning in it. Well, I think
1: I think what you're you're bringing up is that, you know, who who owns that dysfunction? That right. uh, you know, that people are just crawling the webs trying to put out their own fires and trying to solve their own sets of solutions. And what we frankly see is, you know, people are going to, you know, experiment on themselves and they're, I mean, whether that's, you know, the polypharmy going on, the, the serious interventions around alcohol and THC and, and Ambien. I mean, I just, at some point, you know, I think we have to have this realistic say, realistic kind of come, come to the table moment where we realize that, this is going to happen in spite of us. And we might as well be part yep. of this conversation.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause people are, they're seeking information and they can find it and it may not necessarily be from a reputable source. But like I said, when you're just like with research, it, when you are seeking help and you're seeking information, you'll, you'll find it. It may not be good information, but you're going to find information.
1: Whatever. I watched, it, I watched it, three exactly. videos on how to drain my own knee on the internet and it was <laughs> oh, totally, God. totally easy.
2: I was I was way
0: more involved, by the way, in that process than I wanted to be, including catching said drainage in a kitchen cup on our dining room table. So that's way more than you needed to know, Sue. But um, just a little, you know, insight into how weird we are. What? The Starrett household. I love that this is what you guys do on a Tuesday. Yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah. This is why both of our girls will be in deep therapy in their 20s. So I heard an interview, I heard an interview where you talked about how so many athletes function in pain thinking that's normal. And I'm not talking about like the kind of pain you experience because you're working really hard or training, training hard, just the sort of like athletic experience pain. I'm talking about like nagging pain and nagging injuries that they live with both during and after training um i know kelly always says that the resting state of the human being should be pain free what do you think about that and you know and, and is is that also true for athletes recreational and professional alike and you know what what should they do if that's what you know if that's if they're experiencing constant nagging pain you know what would you suggest where do you start
2: yeah i That's a great question. And I completely agree with Kelly as well. I mean, our bodies are not meant to be in a state of disease. Right. And, and when you are at rest and you are at pain, to me, that's worse than movement with pain, right? You can at least work through the biomechanical reasoning, why someone might be in pain while they're moving. But when people are at pain at rest, that's so disturbing to the system on so many different levels, mentally, physically, chemically, energetically, metabolically, like it's, it's just a disaster for the system on so many levels. And so, yeah, pain at rest to me is a really alarming subjective um, that I really don't like. And so one of the things that I really focus on, I think I have spent 20 years of my career focused on biomechanics and in the last two to three years of my career, I've been way more focused on the nervous system. And the more I focus on the nervous system, the more, um, I think the better results that I'm getting. I I've, I've focused for two decades on improving people's motor output where if you can change their sensory input, you will automatically change their motor output. And so I've really sort of shifted my practice from a biomechanical focus to a neurological approach and really focused on the concepts of parasympathetic versus sympathetic stimulation, the concepts of sort of not to get too Eastern medicine-y, but the concepts of yin and yang, right? We're, We're so focused on movement and teaching movement, 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 but what about teaching rest? We never really teach our patients how to rest. And so I think that really came to light for me when I read Philip Beach's book where he talks about the archetypal um, postures of repose and how people never learn how to rest. And, and I thought, of course, like what happens if you turn a light bulb on and leave it on? I mean, with these energy savers, right, they might last for years, but eventually the light bulb is going to burn out if you never Ever turn it off. And so same thing with our bodies. If we are always sympathetically driven and sympathetically, right? And our, our athletes, our patients, oh my gosh, they are just constantly sympathetically stimulated. If we never turn them off, so to speak, or we never sort of tap into that parasympathetic state, they are of course going to burn out. And so, yeah, I've really just sort of really shifted my practice over the last couple of years to, to be thinking about the autonomic nervous system way more than I ever had.
1: Amen.
0: Amen. And you know, it's so interesting because I there's a lot of things Kelly and I do these days that I don't think we set out to do. One of those things has been talking a lot about downregulation. Yeah. And I don't think we really planned on that. You know, we're athletes and we're always in a go, go, go. But we, you know, we just sort of were backed in realizing that this is a huge problem for everybody and athletes in particular whose natural instinct is to just train through it or keep working no matter what. Um, so, yeah, I mean. We, we've all you, come to the same place, <laughs> whether we meant to or not.
1: I think you have to. I think, yeah. I think you really bring up a really important part as, as we talk about pain and sensitization around pain. You know, if you look at, if you go into the Seven Eleven, there are 1500 eight hour energy drinks there. Right. right. And 70,000. They're always
0: like right up by the uh, checkout counter. NAS, now too, which is,
1: you know, it's all about getting up pre-workout. Show me the post-workout there. It doesn't exist. And, And I think what we've done is really tried to, we've gotten really good at getting people up and going, and we're just terrible at turning off. And you're right. I think that that down regulation piece, I think we've all come to recognize that that input. And if you even have tracked any of the work I've done in the last two years, the amount of breathing we're talking about, (laughs) the amount of you know, contract or relax with breathing. How do we think about desensitization and down regulation? I think we all got there because it was the elephant in the room and we couldn't make for for further forward progress on the things we cared about until we got this right.
0: Yeah, and this isn't even a mobility wad plug, but in February we actually at you know went onto two tracks of daily videos for Mobility Wad, one of them just being a down regulation recover daily follow along, um, for this exact reason. Because <laughs> we yeah. realized this
2: this was a huge lost piece in the puzzle? I think so. I think it's a, it's a huge, huge loss piece. And the more I focus on the breathing stuff too, and I've definitely seen the stuff that you guys have been doing and implement some of that stuff into my practice too. It's, it's been, it's such a huge, it's amazing to see your patient have even a couple minutes of being turned off, right? Like they're in the middle of a crazy weight room and they're like laying over this ball on their stomach and they're just, I'm like, are are you okay? In a total Zen state (laughs) with like
0: weights dropping all around their head and they're just in a different universe.
2: Yeah. They're not even moving. And then, you know, they're like, where, where do you keep this ball? Where is it? I'm like, it's going to be right here. (laughs) You can always find it. It's amazing to watch them turn off and how their system craves, even just a few minutes of that. Um, and then what that does to them overall, it's been, it's been really cool to watch.
0: So back to your book, Bridging the Gap, um, it seems like there have been many, many books, uh, written about rehab for the medical profession and tons and tons of books about training athletes for strength and conditioning coaches, but it's pretty clear. And I know you, both you and Kelly have talked about this, that these people often never talk to each other working in silos. And I know we brought it up earlier in the podcast, um, it seems to me, you know, I'm not a physical therapist, but I have owned a physical physical therapy clinic for years. It seems like in the traditional PT environment, you know, they do and are trained to do a really good job of getting people back to like functional, meaning, you know, you have an ACL surgery and then you they get you back to the point where you can like walk around and go to the bathroom. Um, but a terrible job of taking that next step of returning someone to sport um, or even high level elite, you know, functioning. Um, and it seems like your book has come right at the right time to sort of you know, I don't know, know how else to say it, but bridge that gap.
2: Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about it i yeah i I hope it does. it was um I, I felt like exactly what you had said that there was a lot of books on rehab, there's a lot of books on strength and conditioning, but there was really a void in 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 the um space about how to how to bridge those two things. and I think as a young physical therapist. Um, when I first started working at athletes performance, I really had no concept of sort of, I thought, Oh, they can do three sets of 10 of a step up. Great. They can go back to football. Nailed it. (laughs) it. (laughs) And then I went out and watched football practice and I was like, Oh, these things don't really match. And so, you know, the more time I spent with the strength coaches, the better clinician I became because I understood the end game. I think when I was was not to say just a clinician, but when I was just a clinician, I didn't understand the end game fully. I really didn't. And, and the more I hung out with the strength coaches and the movement coaches, the better physical therapist and athletic trainer I became. And it was, it was tough. This was a tough book to write. It took me a couple of years. Um, and we struggled early on, larry uh, Draper, who is the most amazing editor Fact. ever. She is uh, so awesome. My gosh, she's so awesome. We, I really struggled Um, and I appreciated her feedback. It was so great. I think she, she really helped me get a great book out there. Um, but we struggled with the voice because in the beginning, like if you're a strength coach and you're teaching people how to do Olympic lifting, you're probably not going to buy my book to learn how to teach someone to Olympic lift. And if you're a physical therapist, you're probably not going to buy my book to figure out how to evaluate a patient, right? It's almost flipped. the voice changes in the beginning when we're talking more about pain and motion segment and psychomotor control and, 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 and balance and sensory sensory motor system. Sensory motor system. This, to me, that's where the strength coaches are going to want to spend their time. And then yeah. the physical therapists and athletic trainers, they're going to want to spend their time more at the end of the book where I talk more about strength training and, and load variations and speed variations and movement, fundamental movements. And so the voice, it was really difficult to get the voice consistent across the book because I really wanted it to speak to all professionals. Um, but I really think that it, it sort of flips. The beginning of the book is really more for the strength and conditioning professional. And the end of the book is really more for the healthcare clinician.
1: Well, one of the things that I think is wonderful is that you actually give formal voice to the fact that there's this thing called overlap. Right. That, and, and one of the things that we've been struggling with on our side is trying to pull the strength and conditioning world up. I'll, I'll be in Dallas tomorrow and hopefully overturning some tables but the, the strength and conditioning coach is responsible for position. And who, what tools are they using to improve position and restore function? Because, you know, if uh, I love what Gray Cook said once. He's like, if, if you foam rolled and it didn't fix it, it's probably not a foam rolling problem, right? right? I'm like, duh, isn't that nice? And if you've squatted and your hips are still tight and you can't get to depth, it may not just be a more squat problem. I think we can use that logic in both places. And what we're seeing now is we've got to get some of the unskilled, I'm just going to put that in quotation marks, unskilled therapy that you don't have to have a clinical doctorate in, you don't have to be a, a, a scientist, a nerd in, we can unload that. And it actually belongs more closely in the domain of the coach, down regulation, tissue mm-hmm. restoration, uh, you know, positional competency. So we've, we can pull the coaches up and I really appreciate that they get no training in the first half of the book as, as you're talking. And then we also have to give this language of, movement and performance back to the physio. Because <clears throat> they are so far removed. It, only, and remember, it's, it's and for physios out there, we're not hating because we're both physios, it's not part of your education. And so if you're never exposed to it, it's really difficult to know what good running looks like, or good cunning looks like, or good lifting looks like, or sequencing. And, and I, I really feel like this is the first book ever to really bridge formally that that intermediate zone, what we have always called the transition athlete, which is one of the things that we have always specialized in our clinic on. You have discharge from rehab. Insurance will not pay for your return to sport. It repays pay, for return to function. And I'm not sure that the... Carpeted, low hang, hung ceiling place is the place for you to, you know, actually go back to return to sport.
0: <laughs> that doesn't inspire you to do awesome
2: things. Well, athletically? you can <laughs> deadlift heavy in there, but you just can't. Office. Yeah, that's
1: right. It's just it's it's harder.
2: It absolutely is more difficult for sure. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. There is this area of overlap, and there's not. You know, I I think the other the other thing that was always frustrating to me, sort of growing up, was is, is Well, I want to follow, I'm going to follow FMS or I follow SFMA or I follow PRI or I follow DNS or I follow LMNOP. I'm like, you know, they all fit. You know, Michael Boyle and I have this conversation all the time when, cause I'm a huge yogi, you know, yogini person. And he would always tell me, he's like, Sue, I hate yoga. Yoga's so stupid. And (laughs) he didn't understand
1: the yoga yet. He
2: just didn't get it. And so I did a, a yoga talk for Perform Better, and my whole goal, I was like, Michael, my only goal for this talk this year is to make you a yoga fan. And he was like, All right, you converted me, which he may have just been appeasing me, but no. Oh my God, what? Michael Boyle
1: he's is he's a he's a ninja, <laughs> and and you know once you start to bridge that gap and you start to understand. That these are not—I don't know which coach said it. These are not gang affiliations; right. they're tools. And in, fa- in fact, you know, when we start to get—we <laughs> get back to principles. You suddenly then it's an issue of style, and then an issue of of tactic, not strategy. You know oh, that. Right. You know, hey, you can use kettlebells. You know, I I just made a joke the other day. I was like, give me some kettlebells and a young kid and maybe a, an assault bike, and we're going to the Olympics. Yep, you know? all good. And my friend was like which sports in the olympics and I was like well a lot, a lot of them. Of them. <laughs> so, you know, but but once you understand the principles and then it really becomes fundamental and I really I appreciate that the heart and soul of this is about function. Like I feel like ultimately it's about our expressions as human beings in the world as physical animals. That's the thing. And whether we tune that up and you're you know a hundred meter sprinter or you're playing in the NBA or you tune it down and you're picking up your kids and loading groceries, it's really ultimately your book and these conversations are about the expression in the world and And that's the thing we have to care about most
2: absolutely. and and i I appreciate that. and i and I really agree. I feel like I feel like people confuse their tools with their philosophy. and You know, and that was that was my point about about the yoga was that, yeah, yoga is a great tool if you want to have somatosensory control and psychomotor control and maybe some fundamental strength. But it's horrible if you want to teach someone acceleration mechanics like that's a (laughs) poor choice. Uh, Well, you,
1: you can do chaturanga pretty fast. I'm just saying those are called burpees.
2: Right. Right. So people confuse their tools with their philosophy all the time. And I'm amazed at how many young clinicians I have this conversation with. And I ask them what their, what their philosophy is regarding movement. And they can't, they're like, oh, well, I, I follow PRI. And I'm like, "Uh, okay, that's a tool. Like, how does that fit within your philosophy? It's a great tool for certain things, but. And
1: and for those of you listening, PRI is Postural Restoration Institute, and they're great people. Who are dedicated to improving breathing mechanics and spi- spinal mechanics
2: absolutely they're fantastic and and but people don't know where the tool fits within their philosophy as a whole and so for me it was all about showing part of this book was showing people that all the tools fit wherever whatever tool you are gravitating to and that speaks your language Awesome! It has its place in the continuum of returning your athlete to, to movement or your client to movement. It's just a matter of how do you use that tool to express your philosophy. Um, and like you said, people, you know, oh, I, I like to use a kettlebell. You can give me any tool. You give me a needle. You give me my thumb. You give me a piece of tape. Great! I can still express my philosophy.
0: I love that. And you know, we still have probably twenty more questions to ask you, but we're we're at the hour. And I just want to say, from my standpoint, what a total pleasure it is to talk to you. And I think we could probably keep this going for another hour. Um, thank you so much, Sue. We will oh link God.
1: link to your book, and just you know, you have some West Coast fans. And I, there's this place your near chance. us called Napa. Maybe you've heard of it.
0: Yeah, they make wine there.
1: We have, ah, we have some yeah, good we're wine near wine. So if
0: I'll uh, to check it out. If
1: we can't lure you in with ours with our down regulation <laughs> sauna ice bath combo. You know, come come for the down regulation, stay for the wine, Sue. So.
2: I would absolutely love to. You guys are such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on today. This was awesome.
0: Ditto. Thanks, Sue.
1: Thanks, Sue. Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com.
0: The Ready State is the podcast of MobilityWad.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic
1: maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under MobilityWad. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Until next time, cheers, everyone.
2: You got it!
0: Kelly Starrett is the New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is a co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave.
2: You got it! to stop.